you know, Jay, Skin's power is kind of awful. It does seem like it would be more hindrance than help a lot of the time. Who do you think has the worst mutant power? Well, per the series' worst X-Men ever, it's Bailey Hoskins. Oh, what does he do? In theory, he explodes. Oh, uh, but why just in theory? Because it would kill him. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 362 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, I don't know, a bunch of stuff. Sometimes various books and their various stories line up super neatly, and we have a perfect episode-sized chunk of stuff. Sometimes it's more of a catch-as-catch-can, and that's what we're looking at this week, three issues that don't really fit into the larger arcs around them. I mean, technically everything kind of fits into the build-up to Operation Zero Tolerance. That's something that Operation Zero Tolerance very much has in common with Onslaught, which is that we're going to have almost every single X-comic for many, many, many months lead up to it in some fashion or another, and that's definitely the case with the ones we'll be talking about today. Right, but at the same time, they sit by themselves pretty neatly. Got two issues of Generation X, one of X-Factor. So, which do you want to start with? You want to start with some teenagers or some disgruntled, mostly supervillains? Um, oh, let's start with the teenagers. Teenagers, it is. I'm really enjoying going through Generation X. Like, I only ever, in my initial X-Men fandom, read the first, I want to say, four or five issues before I quit comics for a while. Yeah, likewise, because I was reading from your collection. Yeah, so this stuff is basically all new to me, and by and large, it's pretty good. Especially the issues drawn by Chris Pacello. Okay, mostly the issues drawn by Chris Pacello, but I do have a great deal of affection for all these characters regardless. Yeah, it's a really fun cast, and again, Bacello's art just really elevates the entire title. Too bad he won't be around for much longer. No. But he is for both of these issues. Yay! Excellent. As for what came before, however... The mid-90s class of mutant teens called Generation X has been through some stuff. I mean, so has everyone, and most of that stuff was, you know, onslaught. In the case of Generation X, most of the team was kidnapped and brainwashed by their headmistress, Emma Frost, former White Queen of the Hellfire Club, who was doing her best to protect them despite herself being somewhat mind-controlled or at least influenced by Onslaught. Jubilee, M, Husk, and Sink, if I recall correctly, were along for that ride. Chamber, in the meantime, began suffering from Onslaught-induced psychic trauma, so he went with his buddy Skin on a road trip to ask Xavier for help. Since Xavier kinda, you know, was Onslaught, that didn't work out very well. But they are still on the road. Back at the Massachusetts branch of the Xavier School, the oft-forgotten Mondo and Penance hung out with adorable Moppets, Artie and Leech in the Danger Grotto while everyone else was off having adventures. Think it's time to catch our breath after that Onslaught of Onslaught? Wow, I, I, I don't really know what to say to that, Miles. I do what I can. Anyway, let's move on to Generation X, number 20, Bodies in Motion. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Mark Buckingham, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered, as always, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. 
And let's start where this issue does with the cover. Because if skin and a heavily bearded chamber were merely hitchhiking, Dayenu, if that plus the sign they're holding that says Albuquerque spelled wrong, Dayenu, those things plus the fanged turtle with racing stripes randomly hanging out at their feet, frickin' Dayenu. We, we gotta put together a collection of Chris Pacello critters at some point. We do. They're delightful. We've probably mentioned this in the show before, but they always remind me of the random little fantastical critters that Yoshitaka Amano draws with a lot of his Final Fantasy concept art. Like, critters that have nothing to do with the characters or with the games. They're just cute and weird. They're just around. Have you ever seen the his, his book NYC Salad? I have. It's delightful and confusing. Uh, Amano, not Botello. Uh, yes, yes, yes. The title page, for some reason, uses a psychedelic gig poster, summer of love kind of font and design, and I don't know why, but I feel great about this. And this is something that seems to be very inherent, I suppose, to Generation X. Stylistic choices or storytelling choices made for kind of no reason except that they're fun. I mean, I guess it sort of goes with the whole hitchhiking thing. I guess so, yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's probably actually it. But... It's just wonderful. Like, I enjoy that Generation X has a house style that is mostly an inconsistency of its style. Bocello's art always looks like Bocello's art, but all of these issues go in such different visual directions, and I appreciate that. Yeah, likewise very much. We mentioned Bastion, so let's just kick off with what he's up to. Bastion, as you may recall, is a man who wears black suits with pink accents, really hates mutants, runs an organization called Operation Zero Tolerance, and, from what we can tell at this point in continuity, is not exactly human. We'll find out later that he's secretly a sentinel from the future. And even that is an oversimplification. We also meet a new member of Operation Zero Tolerance, that being a young woman named Daria. We'll see more of her in the future of Generation X, leading up to enduring Operation Zero Tolerance. I kind of like her design. She's got a sports coat and a miniskirt. She's bald with giant earrings. She has a red dot on her forehead that might be a religious thing, but I suspect not, because later on we are going to find that she is a created robot. So is, is she a sentinel? I think she's one of the Omega Sentinels. I don't remember if that's what they're called. So the Omega Sentinels aren't actually robots. The Omega Sentinels all start out as humans. Ah, so it is very possible that is a religious thing, and her appearance has just remained unaltered from her previous pre-robotification identity. Yeah. If she's an Omega Sentinel, then yeah. Or, this being Chris Bichello, maybe he just thought it would look cool. Who can say? Of course, Bastion being Bastion, uh, he fails to appreciate his, his, his extremely hardworking assistant, and in fact almost strangles her when she surprises him in his office because he doesn't like being snuck up on. Yeah, it's like one of those villains who, the second one of their lieutenants fails, they kill that lieutenant and promote someone else. I should clarify, too, that when I say surprises him, I mean comes into his office when he isn't expecting her to, not like sneaks up behind him and knee tackles him while yelling surprise, Mark Trail style. Oh, man. Yeah, if uh, Bastion is your boss or your friend or your family member, do not throw him a surprise birthday party. Everyone will end up dead. I mean, odds are pretty good that that'll happen anyway if Bastion is your boss or friend or family member. Yeah, maybe just stay away from Bastion. But Daria is not. She, in fact, is helping Bastion look over video footage from the airport scene from the very first issue of Generation X, when Chamber was arriving from England, and then M-Plate attacked, and the kids all had to fight him off. Bastion is really interested in Chamber specifically, 
And even more so when Daria tells Bastion that Chamber's flight was funded by Frost Enterprises. Now, there's another OZT connection in this issue, sort of. I don't know if you remember Chevy, the janitor, um, who was also responsible for, he was one of the people who beat the mutant kid to death that triggered Xavier turning into Onslaught. Oh yeah, in X-Men Prime number one, that was when that murder happened. Right. Well, he had been working at the Xavier School, and there had been no one there, and he had no idea what was going on. And he's in this issue, and in Boston, in a diner, he meets with someone shadowy who encourages him to keep the Xavier School job for you know, ominous but unspecified reasons. And uh, this subplot, spoiler, will go nowhere. So often, whenever we say this subplot will go nowhere, I'll do a bit of research just to make sure that we're right. And the Marvel database, that's uh, marvel.fandom.com, which is a great wiki, is usually my first stop for that. This guy, Chevy, he doesn't even have his own Marvel database entry. His name is just unclickable text when he shows up in issues. Even freaking Mean Cuisine has his own Marvel database entry. Who's Mean Cuisine? Uh, he was in an issue of What The, I believe. Let's see. He's like an evil food guy. He's a guy made of food, but evil food. Of course he is. Anyway, much more appealingly than entryless Chevy are Artie and Leech, who definitely have Marvel Database entries. They are diving in the danger grotto from a waterfall with Sink and Jubilee, and they remain adorable goddamn moppets. They're wearing shower caps, despite their lack of hair, and despite the fact that a diving cap would be a much uh, more reasonable choice. And it's just, it's just so beautiful. It's also the page that, that opens the issue, we should note, which will make more sense when you see that Leech's first line is, Come, Artie. We can't start the story until you jump. Yeah, that's Generation X, all right. Do you remember the time when there was a random frog who helped us start an issue and then just hopped away and was never seen again? There have been a lot of frogs. A lot of frogs, a lot of turtles. I think Pacello just really enjoys reptiles and amphibians. Leech looks a little like a turtle. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does. It's kind of a beaky mouth. Huh. Well done, Leech. Well done with, you know, everything. But yeah, this is the Danger Grotto, which of course is a holographic, if usually wilderness-based, chamber inside the Massachusetts branch of the Xavier School. That's a lowercase c chamber. Uh, yes, yes, good disambiguation. And all of the characters are in here having sort of a summer fun hangout. Banshee is grilling, complete with his giant goddamn arms. He is so beefy when Bocello draws him. Uh, also, I guess beefy when he's grilling beef, for that matter. Wah, wah. So I recently heard a story I'm really, really entertained by about um, my wife's former cat, who went eventually to live with her parents because this cat was an amazing escape artist and kept on getting out of New York apartments. And her folks' place is kind of rural, and it was somewhere where he could be an outdoor cat without causing major havoc. But he was he was an avid hunter, and every time T's mom grilled, he would show up with something he had caught and wait patiently next to her in hopes that apparently in hopes that she would grill it for him. That is amazing. I mean, you know, if you're going to go to a barbecue, you should totally bring something to throw on the grill. That cat was very polite and considerate, even if you know grilled hedgehog isn't really everyone's cuppa. Oh, absolutely. That's so good. I love everything about that cat. Every time I hear a new story about that cat, that cat rises in my estimation. I'm pretty sure that's this is the only story you've ever heard about that cat, but I could be mistaken. 
Oh, maybe the family just has a lot of good cats. The the cat who killed a mouse and dropped it in a trash can is a different cat. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, cats are the best kind of terrible. But I have to wonder, like, we see Generation X doing this here. We presumably see that cat showing up with something for the grill. The X-Men have the danger room. Like, we've seen this in Star Trek on the holodeck. Why don't the X-Men use the danger room for all of their gatherings, all of their hypothetical situations, all of their weird fantasies? Do you think they do and we just don't see that? I think that the reason we don't see it is that they use it for the gatherings that would intensely violate the comics code. Oh, gotcha. Uh, Especially with uh, Banshee on the team, he'd bring Moira over, and, oh man, yeah, they need us to bring in a telekinetic to clean up after their escapades. Everyone fucks in the danger room, Miles. Everyone. (laughs) Yeah, everyone. Uh, Well, these kids are in large part underage, so maybe we shouldn't talk about that part with them. Anyway, not everyone's having a great time. Emma points out to Banshee that Paige, Husk, is sitting on a tire swing, despondently staring off into space. And she knows that at this point, what with the whole kidnapping, brainwashing thing, she probably doesn't have much credibility with the kids. So it's Banshee's turn. And his his pep talk starts with acknowledging, you know, what, what she mentions is the issue, which is that after Onslaught, things are probably going to turn a lot more aggressively anti-mutant. But he points out that, you know, that doesn't mean there's not good stuff going on, too. What was that last line from Seven, the modification of the old quote? Some people say the world is a fine place and worth fighting for, I believe, in the second part. It's something like that. Anyway, while this genuinely excellent character interaction is going on, Emma's salad explodes and the supernatural villain Nightmare bursts out and says he'll be back. And that actually won't really matter for a couple issues. Like, I was thinking we might not even need to mention it, but I do really appreciate Mondo's blasé response to Emma saying that her salad attacked and him just sort of staring at it, like, mostly in disbelief, but also a little bit suspiciously. See, I assumed there was a Black Tom connection. Oh, that's true, because we will find that this Mondo is not the real Mondo. This is a plant-based clone that Black Tom created way back in the day. Yeah, and we know that Black Tom's been lurking in the danger room being somewhat villainous. Okay, okay, so that could indeed be the case. Well, regardless, it's a lot of fun because Emma Salad turned into a Lord of Fear. As happens. The mostly non-communicative penance is actually sitting on the grill when the characters look back at it eating off of it she's trying so hard to fit in and interact with the characters and i i just love her so much she's trying so hard in these two issues i she's she is maybe my favorite member of the team she is yeah also stellar character design which is a little different here because her face is looking more fleshy than it was and is kind of cut up presumably from her own hands edward scissorhand style i don't remember if this is going to go anywhere from my knowledge of Generation X. I mean, obviously we'll find out who Penance really is at some point before too very long. The face thing? I don't know if that ties in. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like you, I'm reading a lot of this run for the first time now. Yeah. But this mystery, the mystery of Penance, for that matter, the mystery of Skin's past we're going to get to later, the mystery of Monet's identity, all of that stuff has been around since almost the beginning of the series. This is such a slow-paced series, and this is such a slow-paced issue of this series, and I don't really mind that. It's This issue is like a leisurely summer day, and I'm sure part of why I appreciate that is because it's gray and rainy winter hell in Portland right now. Like, not even the cool winter with a bunch of snow. Like, you go outside, and it's just kind of sad. 
And so this issue is perfect. But that's also not a bad pace. In some ways, this is a hangout book, and I like that aspect of it. Yeah, it's it's got that that sort of slow, lazy summer day feel to it. Very much, yeah. And on this summer day, in, in fact, in front of a beautiful summery sunset with these peach clouds in front of this blue to yellow fading sky, uh, Emma is talking to Monet. Emma knows she doesn't have much credibility with most of the kids, but she and Monet have shared some secrets. Remember, Monet told Emma, but not the readers, what her deal was not that long ago. Right, and they've clicked. I mean, again, they both have secrets, and they're each aware that the other has secrets. And they've established a degree of kind of, I think, mutual respect that we haven't really seen either of them develop with with other characters. Yeah, and they're showing that respect. They're opening up to each other a little by sharing ice cream on a roof. You know who doesn't respect anybody? Uh, oh, I mean, there are so many answers to that question, Jay. I'm thinking of Nathaniel Richards, who looks a little bit too much like Cable for my taste in this book. He looks a little more to me like Deathstroke the Terminator from DC, but that might just be his color scheme and white hair and goatee. He's somewhere between the two, or he hovers somewhere between the two, and it's, he's, he's just cable enough that he initially reads as Cable when I, when I glance at a page he's on, and, and there's always like a moment of readjustment of, oh no, this is actually Reed's weird time traveler dad. Yeah, we saw him during Onslaught in the Fantastic Four issues. Basically, he's a grizzled, very competent kind of jerk who does nonetheless love his family in general, and Franklin Richards in particular, very much. And he has shown up to drop off his grandson, Franklin Richards, at the Xavier School so that Franklin can be somewhere safe, learn about his powers while his parents are apparently dead, actually off in another pocket universe. And Franklin, after having gone through a fair bit of trauma, not that it's resolved yet, that won't be more resolved until the Daydreamers miniseries that we covered that actually takes place after this, he nonetheless is pretty comfortable around here. It's kind of idyllic. The kids are all eating marshmallows around the fire. Monet is playing saxophone, which really just reminded me of that wonderful scene from The Jerk. Do you remember the one I'm talking about? I don't. Oh, uh, yeah, Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters are uh, hanging out in front of a campfire, being all romantic, and Steve Martin pulls out a banjo and starts playing a romantic song, and when it gets to the bridge, she just pulls, like, a little trumpety thing, a coronet maybe, out of nowhere and starts accompanying him, and I cannot explain why, but it's goddamn hilarious. Ah, see, I thought you were gonna say the saxophonist from Lost Boys. Uh, no, no, that's a very different vibe, that, that saxophone. This, um, M Monet is just sort of being chill about this, not, uh, so much sexy and oily. I, that, that, that's the most out of nowhere, well, not that, but the, the subsequent sketches based on that are sort of what, what I go to when I think of out of nowhere saxophonist. <laughs> Legit. But yeah, it's really nice, and... What's also interesting here, as everyone's very comfortable around each other and relaxed, is that Jubilee starts to flirt pretty hard with Sync. And that's something that we'll see more and more of as the series goes on. So let's talk about this a little. Well, they've been, they, she, she's, she's been flirting with him, or at least hinting that she's interested in him for a while at this point. I think so. I, I think it was kind of ambiguous, to my read at least, whether that was just them being super tight buds or if there was something more. And I think with a character like Jubilee, it would be hard to say. Mm. But I remember a while back, we talked about how many people view Jubilee as ace here, but she definitely is flirting with Sync. 
And so let's kind of like talk around that because I think this is something that can get oversimplified way too often. I mean, I think even discounting the comics are inconsistent thing, I think demanding perfect consistency from a character in terms of representation of, of their sexuality is is kind of fundamentally unfair. A lot of people on a lot of queer spectrums, and I'm including the, the ace spectrum in this, spend a lot of time trying to perform standard, you know, heteroallosexuality um, before they sort of work their stuff out. But also, they, there's, you can be ace and flirt. That's not, those aren't mutually exclusive categories. Totally. Flirting is just fun. I mean, I definitely flirt with people that there's really not many interest between us just because it's fun sometimes. Or, you know, be a send interest in relationships or like sex or any of anyway, it's it. I, I think I'd like I think you're coming at this from a reductive angle if you're, you're seeing these as contradictory ideas. Uh, no, I mean, the way you're describing it makes makes perfect sense to me. But yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things where we can't say what canonically is the case because these are fictional characters, a written by a bunch of different people, b and shit's complicated, c. But it's. It's interesting to me nonetheless, because if nothing else, this is a side of Jubilee we haven't seen very often before. Yeah, that's true. But we also really haven't seen her around her peers until this series. You know, that's a really good point. She was the kid that hung out with Wolverine and the kid that hung out with the X-Men for many, 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 many years. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of the more kid side of the kid spectrum, the little ones are great Franklin hits it off with Leech and Artie, like, immediately. He's telling the two Moppets about his robot friend Herbie and his nanny, who is a witch. And I love that Artie uses his image projection to create a little speech bubble with a very stereotypical Halloween witch before Franklin corrects him. But remember, while Franklin may not know Artie very well, Franklin definitely knows Leech. Like, they spent kind of a lot of time together back when they were both Power Pack characters uh, near when Leech first appeared. Right, yeah, because the power pack was was spending a lot of time um, with the Morlocks. At that point, Franklin, in his immensely inconsistent aging, was tiny. Like, he was practically more than a toddler, and certainly he's, you know, just a normal age child right now. But, uh, you know, a lot of of page count between those two. In all fairness, he's, you know, aged more than Leech. Uh, Yeah, I believe Leech has aged not at all whatsoever since he first appeared. And even in current continuity, he's not that much older than he was for all those years. He's still definitely in the general category of Moppet. Yeah, yeah, probably. Just a slightly taller, lankier Moppet. Someone who does not have any history with these characters, who first appears now, is only in the shadows. One of those things where, does the character really appear in there? Like, is it really a character's first appearance if they're just in the shadow in the last page? Anyway, this is that alien lady, Tana Nile. We don't see her other than uh, seeing some speech bubbles in her hand reaching out, saying that she needs a hand. She calls them younglings because she's from a space plot, and uh, we'll get to more of her later. She's going to go on to feature very heavily in Daydreamers, which, again, we covered in the holiday special. Yep. And so that's basically it for this issue. Like, not a lot happens, and that's fine. Uh, the copy I was looking at does include some Heroes Reborn preview pages at the end, and holy shit, Rob Liefeld's Captain America has legs that are, like, as long as my entire body plus. He's very tall. He's, like, nine feet tall. Uh, I, he he kind of looks like it, actually, especially next to other characters. He'd have to be, just based on that description. Uh, yeah, actually. No, so so there you go. Nine feet tall, Steve Rogers. Canon. Bites grizzly bears. Obviously. 
so let's go right into Generation X number 21, To Live and Die and Molt in L.A., written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Bacello, inked by Joe Pimentel, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And the title is actually a reference to a movie from 85 called To Live and Die in L.A. Willem Dafoe is the villain in it, so I can only assume that it's delightful just watching him devour all scenery in sight, but I know nothing about it beyond that, and that it probably doesn't have Howard the Duck in it. All I know about it is the things that you just said, because that was the first I had ever heard of it. Yeah, well, there you go. And I only know about it because of a footnote at UncannyXMen.net. Now, the credits of, the, of this issue also mention that the creators will be available soon to revive US-1. Yes! So, I also looked this up. This was a 12-issue series from, you know, before then, by Al Milgram about a trucker hero. Uh, it... As so many similar comics were, it was a tie-in with toys. In this case, they were slot car toys that Marvel made a comic about. Uh, the best thing about it that I could find is that the villain is named Baron Von Blimp. He's the guy with the blimp. Uh, even he, I should point out, has a Marvel database entry. And in the solicit for his second appearance in US-1 number 4, we hear that maybe Goodrich doesn't have a blimp, but US-1 does. He's Baron Von Blimp who challenges the titanic trucker to a startling showdown of dirigible power versus truck power. What the fuck? Uh, so what do you say? From now on, Jay and Miles explain US-1, like, fuck all this X-Men stuff. It's just US-1 for all 12 of its issues, and then we'll retire. Only if we can also talk about US, the actual US Highway 1 a fair lot, because it's a really cool road with a lot of really cool history and also some elephant seals. And sometimes, apparently, some blimp attacks, from what I understand. I guess so. Anyway, this issue opens amazingly. We've talked before about the Danger Room cold open that X-Men used to do, especially in the 70s and 80s, where an issue would start with the X-Men doing their thing in the Danger Room. We get to know each character and their powers and their dynamics, and everyone says their real name and their code name. In this case, we have a midterm page doodle cold open. I'd say this is closer to the letter home cold open. Uh, yeah, okay, okay, that's fair. Um, as Jubilee sort of, uh, doodles her take on each of the different characters. So the kids are taking this test overseen by Beast on loan from X-Men, uh, and Jubilee is, is doodling, and we find her as Earth Girl Lee, the space explorer, Sink as Sinkosaurus, the dinosaur man, Husk as the fastest peel in the West, a cowgirl. M is Monet Martian. She also doodles all the other characters, but they don't have uh, names. She also is um, taking her test very poorly. The first page is asking her to define a bunch of different types of powers, and for Metamorph, she just writes, I never Metamorph I didn't like. Wah, wah. This book is just so goddamn charming, and Jubilee's personality fits with Lobdell's writing style in it, and I think especially Bacello's art style in it so well. Yeah, yeah. We do get to know each character a little bit in this cold open. You know, not like our podcast-style cold open, but Danger Room-style cold open. As Beast talks to each of them, we don't really learn anything too new, but I do really appreciate when Sink calls Beast over to ask him a question, saying, Sir? Yes, Mr. Thomas? How do you spell Satire 9? Just like it sounds, Everett. I do appreciate this, even if us being an audio format means the spelling pronunciation humor is a bit lost. Because, yeah, that is S-A-T-Y-R number nine. 
that's the uh, evil version of Saturnine from Excalibur that we never knew how to pronounce her goddamn name. So, uh, yes, well done. Nice little meta humor there, specifically targeted at this pair of podcasters right here. Indeed. Uh, interestingly, Beast also wonders if Sync has any idea how powerful Sync's going to be someday. Uh, I assume not, because it'll actually take 500 years in a time bubble city and the resurrection protocols on Krakoa to make that happen. But um, that is interesting for us to be covering this issue now with Sync's powers evolving so impressively in modern day X-Men. Mm, yeah, yeah, it really is. And I know we keep talking about Bicello's art. I feel like we're legally obligated to when we cover Gen X, but it's so good. Pacello's beast especially is so good. He's like this big, handsome, furry, blue goblin, and I love him. Oh, man. I just realized something, and it's going to stick with me. Oh? Which is that I want to see Bacello do a Brian Froud Dark Crystal type world. Holy fucking shit. Yeah, that would be incredible. Oh, I would watch slash read slash whatever the hell out of that. Oh, God, same. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, Chris, if you're, if you're listening, A, we love you, and B, uh, what do you say? That? Even Penance comes in to try to take the test herself, but she mostly just cuts up the paper because she's very, very sharp. Every time she appears in this era, she just has a bigger and bigger place in my heart. I, I gotta say, um, this, this, this scene with Penance is, is definitely deeply relatable. <laughs> this is how I feel most of the time. Relatable content. Anyway, Beast eventually decides that Monet is allowed to leave, having finished her test in four minutes, that patience is fine, but she can take off if she wants to, but she is entirely unresponsive and preoccupied with ripping her test up and folding it into an intricate origami castle. I think it's a model of the school. Oh, that could be. It's a very castle-like school. For that matter, so is the original Xavier Institute. Well, yeah. The school we went to when we were young was mostly a bunch of portable trailers at the time. And based on this, Beast concludes and portentously tells Sean and Emma that, that Monet may be autistic. Which, you know what, Hank McCoy and Scott Lobdell can both just fuck right off there. Yeah, X-Men comics don't have a great history with portraying autism. I mean, I definitely remember when Legion first appeared. Or with knowing what the hell it is. Oh, well, right, yeah, because with Legion, it was like dissociative identity disorder, uh, schizophrenia, and autism all kind of under the same umbrella of autism, and also they were all, like, comic bookified, so not particularly accurate. I don't know, I mean, what do you think? Like, we're seeing actual autistic representation in a sympathetic character in a comic. Does that... Are we? I mean, Monet's a sympathetic character, I think. I like. I think we like Monet. I mean, if I tell you that she's you know, on fire, but she remains portrayed exactly as she is? Are we seeing representation of people on fire? I mean, I genuinely don't know how to respond to that. But I guess, like, th that's the question. Like, where where is the line between this is portrayed badly with, but at least we're seeing it? Like, I, I can definitely tell where, where your take on where this one here falls is, but how, how could this have been handled better? I mean, obviously it could have, but how, uh, how specifically do you think? I mean... Okay, so <laughs> um, a note of history. At the point when this came out, um, to a very, very great extent, autism visibility and activism was dominated by parents of autistic kids with very high support needs. 
like autistic folks' connections to the larger disability rights and representation movement are comparatively recent. That said, this is reductive and bullshit, even by that standard. I, I feel like it's it's roughly commensurate with what would have been the available information and resources to a layperson at the time, but that doesn't mean I need to like it or think it's well done. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. And continuity-wise, we'll find that what's going on here is that since the Monet we know is actually her two younger twin sisters in the psychic equivalent of a trench coat merged into her, and one of those sisters sisters is autistic, that's what's going on. When that sister personality becomes dominant, sometimes Monet will become unresponsive, which, again, like you said, is reductive, that that is, like, the singular autistic trait here. Well, like, for Legion, it the term is, is used to describe what's arguably a catatonic state. Right, yeah. So, again, reductive, minimal, and arguably misrepresentative. But nonetheless, it will uh, definitely be a plot point going forward, so we'll we'll keep following that whole thing. Gotta say, though, that's some pretty impressive origami Monet did. Yeah, I wonder how she got a structure that large out of that relatively little paper. Uh, we know that she has a bunch of different mutant powers. Maybe she also has mutant origami powers. So that's what ends the issue, but we do have a little bit more plot. We do have some fun plot we haven't talked about. Technically, this started in the previous issue. We figured we'd cram it all together. Because Howard the Duck has picked up Chamber and Skin on the side of the road as they hitchhike. Uh, Chamber, I think as we mentioned on the cover, has a giant goddamn fake beard to cover the hole in his him. Even in my dwarfiest days, I never had a beard like that. Like, it is genuinely impressive. He could be a wizard. A very thin, British, angry wizard. Or at least a fake wizard. Or at least a fake wizard. It's a fake beard. No, that's fair. Yeah, only fake spells in there. Or alternately, maybe it's a real beard, but just not his. He just stole someone's beard? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of a dick move. Uh, Anyway, Howard the Duck picks them up. We talked about him in our winter special, of course, because he will be a Gen X character going forward from here for a while. But in Daydreamers, we did not get to see the way Chris Pacello draws Howard. Chris Pacello draws Howard with beard stubble on the corners of his beak, and I love it so much. There is no natural equivalent of that, and it pleases me greatly. Yeah, it's a little unsettling. Oh, it's great. Anyway, Howard and Beardy Chamber uh, head to a bar in L.A. that's kind of the equivalent of Moz Eisley, uh, except with a framed picture of Opus the Penguin from Bloom County on the wall. But seriously. As all bars should have. Oh, they should. I agree. Uh, this place is so wacky looking. Like, all of the different characters in them, mostly bikers, they are so... They almost look like the the trolls and monsters and mutants from Generation Next. Like, they're hulking and they're lumpy. They're almost caricatured, and I love them. I didn't think of it before we were on this issue, and actually specifically this scene, but do you see kind of a Klebon vibe to some of Pacello's art? You know, I didn't before, but now that you mention it, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I do. Maybe Klebon should have taken over Gen X when Pacello left. Would have been many more large cats. I feel okay about that. We go from reptiles and amphibians to large cats. Maybe they could bring something to Banshee's barbecue. Anyway, Howard remains his usual ill-tempered, sarcastic, violent self, and is, of course, a master of quack-foo. 
So pretty soon, the various bikers and ne'er-do-wells are uh, successfully cowed, or I guess uh, ducked, as our heroes ask for a gang leader named Taurus. This is Megalotaurus. Megalotaurus is a gang leader that has some history with skin. We don't know what yet. In fact, this was hinted starting in, I think, Gen X number, like, five or something way back in the day. Something like, yeah. But during all of this, Skin runs off to a cemetery, disguising himself as an old beardy man. There's a lot of, a lot of fake beards. Or maybe he just folds his excess skin into a weird-looking beard. I don't know. An older woman sits down on the bench next to the, you know, putative old man. Is sitting down and is talking to him about how she lost her son Angelo a year ago. And when she leaves, that gang leader, Taurus, who actually looks a lot like the way Bacello drew Paige back in Generation Next, weirdly. Anyway, uh, she comes by to drop off flowers and to tell the old man to screw off. And he doesn't reveal himself to either this woman who is apparently his mother, because Skin, of course, is Angelo, or this younger woman who knew him. And we're going to find out more about Skin and Miguel Torres' backstory and why everyone thinks Skin is dead, like almost two years worth of comics later. Again, everything takes ages in this book, and you know what? That's fine. Wow, and they've been teasing it for more than a year and a half at this point. They totally have, yeah. So, you know, that's Gen X. What's next isn't, however. Let's talk X-Factor. So, you remember that Onion article, Entire Precinct Made Up of Loose Cannons? That is basically X-Factor, yeah. Right? Uh, So they are the U.S. government's very own team of mutants, but some cannons are looser than others, especially Mystique and Sabretooth, freshly back from villaining around in their own miniseries. The government, for its part, is a loose cannon of its own, even accounting for the fact that they keep on filling X-Factor up with supervillains. For instance, Sabretooth and Mystique's shitty racist human son, Graydon Creed, is currently running for president on a post-onslaught campaign of fear and bigotry, and his human supremacist organization, the Friends of Humanity, are busting heads in his name. Even worse, Bastion, that not-exactly-human hater of mutants and lover of the color pink we mentioned before, is hatching anti-mutant schemes that put Creed's to shame. Although some of them are in collaboration. Uh, true, true. Yeah, the uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend of humanity. I think these are, in, in this case, this is the, the friend of, of the enemy of the point of view characters, at least. This is getting complicated. Anyway, they're both bad guys. Which brings us to X-Factor number 127, Darker Destiny, written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Al Williamson, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. The mutant kid ironically named Trevor Chase flees a bunch of Friends of Humanity in Washington, D.C. And it's fascinating the way this is drawn. Like, he's mutant, they're humans, but the way they're drawn, we see these shadows of long claws on the wall. We see them illuminated when they are seen clearly in this sickly green light. And when they're in shadows, their eyes and grins glow white. Like, they are very much portrayed as inhuman monsters. And Trevor, meanwhile, is, is a, you know, a young teen who's entirely human passing. Now, Mystique has been informally mentoring this kid. She's been teaching him to control his power, telling him it's going to be okay. And as far as is implied in this issue, um, being just kind of a cool aunt. Now, it's not explained here, but Trevor is actually going to turn out to be Destiny's grandson. Uh, yeah, that, that thing I said um, last episode or so, that Destiny didn't have kids when she was in the Black Womb Project. Uh, she, she totally did. Or, well, maybe it was slightly after. Anyway, she did at some point. X-Factor, 
Meanwhile, temporarily restrained is led into an intentionally nondescript government building, a top-secret site. The restraints aren't because they're under arrest or anything like that. They they relate to a regulation saying that they can't have a certain level of clearance because of their superpowers. And they're all there except Mystique, who has obviously escaped as she is wont to do. They shut the building down just a little too late to catch her. She is headed, meanwhile, to Eisenhower Medical Center to check on Trevor, who she swears will be avenged despite calling him by the wrong name in that scene. God damn it, Mystique. I bet, like, when birthdays come around, you totally get him the wrong size t-shirt, too. It's a hilarious error because she's giving him this, like, very serious you will be avenged speech and then is, and then is like, Tyler... Yeah, whatever, Joe. Uh, I I still love her in this scene. And to clarify, avenging doesn't mean he's dead. Like, he's okay. He's just seriously, seriously injured. They're playing the AIDS parallel really hard here. Nurses won't even check in on the kid because they're, he's a mutant and they're scared of the legacy virus. That's something that we see a lot of in this era. And it's something that I, I think we've, we've talked a fair amount about our, our feelings about. We have, yeah. So... Mystique basically has one response when she's mad, which is murderous revenge, so it's time for some of that. Hells yeah. She goes and tracks down the Friends of Humanity guys who attacked Trevor, then tricks them into telling her who sent them. And I love when she shows up, because they're just hanging out, saying racist things, and all of a sudden the lights go out, and then it's just their bright white cartoon eyes in the pitch black background as they talk to each other before Mystique actually starts saying things and shows up. Like, it's so goofily Looney Tunes. It kind of reminds me of, what was that comic strip with Longshot and Cable and Strife in the dark with, like, all the glowing eyes? Uh, that was from, uh, Let's Be Friends Again. Oh, so great. So great. Uh, but it's weird because, like, this is kind of a serious scene about these people having beaten a child and all of a sudden it's Looney Tunes. Yeah, I mean, it's also a pretty commonly played scene of, you know, the the hero coming in, turning out the lights while the villains are bragging about stuff, leaving them cartoonishly helpless and then attacking them. Yup. One of the things that they mention is that they specifically are going to get off easy because they have government and law enforcement connections. Yeah, and in the case of the comic, that, of course, is Braden Creed. I mean, he's a powerful politician, but um, certainly a number of parallels in our real present-day world to that. God damn it. A little bit, yeah. So Forge finally tracks Mystique down back at Trevor's bedside, and before leaving, she confirms that the guy behind the attack was, in fact, Graydon Creed. As all of that's going on, the rest of the team was indeed being interviewed by various government types. Well, one specific government type. We'll get to that in a sec. It's an unseen person, unseen for most of the interviews, who mostly is trying to get them to tell them about someone named Shard. Now, we of course know who Shard is, and we know that her presence in X Factor is a very, very carefully kept secret. She is Bishop's holographic sister, or rather the, the holographic projection of, of the preserved mind of Bishop's sister. And no one's supposed to know she's there. And all of the members of X Factor play dumb as they're interrogated by this, this shadowy individual who turns out eventually to be Bastion. Yeah, even Sabretooth plays dumb. Like, he talks about how much he hates everybody on the team, but he's not talking about Shard either. So... You know what? Sabretooth hates the man just as much as he hates an anybody else. I suppose that's true. So, uh, yeah, Bastion is kind of sort of running X-Factor, at least indirectly these days. I guess it makes sense that somebody who hates mutants as much as him would find a certain amount of enjoyment in having his own pet mutant team. But as far as the interrogations... 
did this remind you of X-Force number 54, that issue Q&A, where X-Force is being interrogated by the cops? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I liked that one better, but I think that's in large part because the X-Force issue, it was dealing with way better developed characters than most of the characters in X-Factor's current lineup. Like, we learned a lot about each character's own approach to being captured and accused of these things in X-Force, and here everyone... You know, I mean, Forge is more polite and Sabretooth is more of a jerk, and I do like that Polaris already anticipates that they're going to worry that she's compromised by her affections for Havoc and she can take him down. But, like, by and large, it's kind of surface level. This issue seems a lot more concerned with the Mystique stuff. Yeah, definitely. Mystique is definitely the A-plot here, which is weird because she's—the stuff with her is framed like the B-plot, but it's it's actually kind of the center of the issue, and it's where the bulk of what's interesting happens. Yeah, and, you know, I think— Probably any issue like this is going to be in the shadow of X-Factor number 87, the one where all of X-Factor was in therapy that Peter David wrote, and that went into incredible depth with each character. So seeing that not happen in this book with the same title, albeit a mostly different cast, I think it's it just doesn't compare well. It, it can't. Yeah, I agree. You know who compares well to everything? Our listeners. And you've got questions. Clayton Flesher asks on Tumblr, any chance of you two having a discussion on who exactly Richard Starkings and Comicraft are and why they were so prevalent in the 90s X titles? Yeah, but I, I don't know how much of a discussion it's going to be because Comicraft is a lettering studio and Richard Starkings is its president and first tiger and they did a lot of lettering on X titles in the 90s. And that's really all there is to it. I feel like we have a professional obligation to elaborate on first tiger. I know that that's his, his official position in the company, president and first tiger. Well, that's awesome. That is an homage, of course, to Hobbes' position in the Get Rid of Slimy Girls Club. Nice. But all right, so let's talk a little bit about what lettering was like at this point, because I know that Comicraft is, uh, like, in my day job, we, we buy a lot of digital fonts from them. Like, they're a font studio that has tons and tons of different fonts. Well, they're a lettering studio that also does font development. Oh, okay, gotcha. So, like, they also letter a lot of comics. Right. And I mean, certainly in the 90s, Richard Starkins and Comicraft very much did. Like, was that because with the advent of digital lettering, it was just easier to get that done quickly, or? I mean, you see different people in different groups and studios move in and out of different lines and different publishers over the years. I mean, the reason I know this stuff is because when I was working at Dark Horse, um, Richard was lettering a lot of comics that I, that I worked on. Totally. Yeah, like, open any comic from any era, and there's a solid chance that his name's going to be in there. Yeah, he's a lovely guy, too. And also first Tiger. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Destiny and Mystique is a well-defined and well-known X relationship. Mystique has been in every X-Men movie. Why do you think that Destiny was never introduced or used in those movies? So, obviously, we, we can't officially answer that because we did not make these movies. I'm so glad we didn't make those movies. For some of them, I'd be so embarrassed. Oh, God, yeah. A anyway, point being... If I had to guess, uh, I would say that part of it is that precognitive characters, they kind of have to be central to the stories they're in, at least if they have precognitive abilities even close to Destiny's incredibly powerful ones. Like, that kind of power almost has to drive the plot, whether through someone having these flash-forward visions or whether somebody's got a prophecy like the Oracle and the Matrix or something. You couldn't really have Destiny as a minor character if she was going to be in an X-Men movie. I mean, there's also a much simpler reason, which is that her powers aren't visual. 
Yeah, yeah, there's that too. I mean, even Jean Grey's powers, like the movies did everything they could to make them more visually engaging, or Professor Xavier for that matter. But yeah, I mean, also there are just so many characters in X-Men. You really have to cut those down. And for a character like Mystique, I mean, okay, I'm going to be uncharitable here. Hollywood, especially at the time, really didn't like to portray queerness very often in mainstream films, which the X-Men movies kind of were for the most part. And at least when she first appeared, Mystique was very much portrayed as like a male gaze target kind of character. And I almost wonder if that would make that less the case, unless it was played for sort of titillation for her to have a female love interest or something. Oh yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, that being said, she's a great character. Uh, although if she was in a movie, they'd probably give her a name other than Irene Adler, because that would just be confusing for anybody familiar with Sherlock Holmes. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the air from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic goes to Bastion. I don't like people very much. I like people who disappoint me even less. You, Kate Lasko, are walking on very thin ice indeed. I asked for my evil humanoid robot coffee equivalents to be non-dairy, but even the most foolish mutant would know the obvious truth, that the future sentinel taste receptors that are coincidentally very similar to mine find oat milk to be revolting. The hydrocolloids are obviously entirely different. Next time, you shall ask for almond milk at inorganic Starbucks, or you shall be disintegrated. Jonathan Newton, I am even more bitter at your failings. When I asked you to fetch my black and pink suit, you should have known I meant the one with the light-hot pink collar, not the one with the lavender pink collar. That's hexadecimal triplet FBAED2 versus FFB3DE. How could you not understand that FBAED2 is far more suited to the types of mutant torture we'll be performing today? Remember, fools. Without standards, we have nothing. And by nothing, I mean a lack of cellular cohesion. So if you value that, shape up. By the way, Operation Zero Tolerance HR has asked me to pass along these evaluation forms to all employees. Responses will be anonymous. But participation is mandatory! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, because it really helps. Next week, Angel gets his wings back. And everyone plays baseball. Baseball.